During this Holy Week at All Saints, we meditate on the passion and death of Jesus, not in the traditional manner of reading through the passion accounts of the Gospels, but by hearing and thinking about passages from letters written by leaders to first-generation Christians. They struggled to put together the two parts of the good news. They were all too happy to accept the message that God was empowering them through the Holy Spirit because of the resurrection of Jesus and his exaltation as Lord. But they struggled, perhaps more than we do, with the part of the good news that was Christ's crucifixion. I say perhaps they struggled more, because after considering Paul's words, we might ask ourselves if we are really that much different than the readers he addresses. They should have struggled more than we do because they lived in a world in which the state authority used crucifixion as its chosen means not only to kill, but also to shame its enemies. Whereas it is conceivable for us to wear a cross on a chain as a piece of jewelry and adornment that brings admiration to the one wearing it, they could only perceive the cross for what it still was, a Roman instrument of torture for the outcast of society, slaves, revolutionaries, specifically designed to bring humiliation to the ones so executed and to anyone associated with them. Joining a community based on the death of a crucified Messiah in the first century was not unlike joining a commune in the 21st century based on a contemporary state-executed criminal like Gary Gilmore. Anyone seeking to join such a commune for the sake of its social benefits should pause at least for a moment to consider the commune's point of origin in the state's rifles of execution at dawn. In his first letter to the church at Corinth, Paul addresses believers who relish the power coming to them from the resurrection, but cannot seem to grasp that the source of such power was the cross. Coming into an assembly from a world in which social status was carefully calibrated in terms of education, wealth, power, and prestige, how much things have changed, they assumed that life within this association would also affirm and protect the same marks of value. What point is there in joining a club that does not at least recognize, if not elevate, our status? Paul perceives, in fact, that the readers have even made the ritual of baptism the sacrament of immersion into the death of Jesus into a marker in their competitive game. I was initiated by a more important cult leader than you were. I am Paul's man. Ah, no, I'm Peter's man. No, I'm Apollos' man. No, I'm Christ's man. So before Paul can 
get them to start thinking with what he calls the mind of Christ, he must get them to engage the part of the good news that they are blithely suppressing the word of the cross. He starts with the emphatic assertion that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, he says, it is the power of God. What outsiders perceive one way, insiders see another. What is striking, though, is that Paul then focuses not on the insider perspective, but on the outsider point of view, perhaps suggesting that these new converts, so enamored of their social status even within the church, continue to think more like outsiders than insiders. What is the outsider perspective on Jesus' death on a cross? Paul distinguishes between Jews and Gentiles. The cross is foolishness to Gentiles and a stumbling block to Jews. Why? Because Gentiles seek wisdom and Jews seek signs. Paul here speaks in a shorthand that in order to understand, we need to expand slightly. First, what are the Gentiles seeking? The polytheistic religions of the Gentiles would not cringe at the proclamation of Jesus as God's son because of the resurrection. They honored other humans who had likewise joined the extended family of the deities. For polytheists, there is always room for one more member of the divine family, always space for an adopted son of God. But there were requirements for such elevation to the divine realm. Only sages who displayed great wisdom, like Socrates, or leaders who displayed uh, astounding powers, like the emperor, deserved such glory. Measured by such criteria, Jesus' death disqualified him from divine ascent. He was fearful before his death. He did not defend himself. He was abandoned by his followers. He cried out uh, with a sense of abandonment by God. And his death was the shameful sort imposed on slaves. How could divine power and wisdom be associated with such manifest folly? Paul also says that the Jews seek signs. We miss the point here if we think that he means spectacular miracles. The Jews simply seek signs that Jesus is a Messiah. The basic criterion is that he makes things better for Jews, and Jesus certainly didn't. He is, therefore, at least a failed Messiah from their perspective. But worse, the manner of Jesus' life suggests he wasn't even a good Torah-observant Jew. He worked on the Sabbath. He associated with sinners and tax collectors and other marginal sorts like lepers and children and, well, women. His death, moreover, proved that he could not be the source of new life that Christians claimed. For Torah itself proclaimed as cursed anyone who was hanged upon a tree. Jesus' manner of crucifixion, his execution, was proof that he was a false messiah, 
and that those who proclaimed him as the Holy One were blaspheming. Now, the point of Paul's elaboration of the scandal of the cross for outsiders is precisely that those to whom he speaks, those who are now being saved by the good news, are themselves Gentiles and Jews. They have carried with them into this new association all their prior perceptions of how God should work with majesty, with obvious power, with great wisdom, and among the well-established and the impeccably credentialed in this world. Even those within the church find the cross foolishness and a stumbling block, for it offends their sense of realism and what is fitting to the divine. How natural it was then for them, indeed for us, to gloss over this offensive part of the message from God and focus only on the energy, the power, the elevation of our lives through the Spirit. How natural it was for them, indeed for us. Once having passed over the scandal of the cross to adopt our customary status markers and measures of value, even within the church, so that the church lives as it decently should by the wisdom of the world. But, Paul thunders, the wisdom of the world could not get us to the living God. It got us only to the wretched projections of ourselves that in turn distorted the world and ourselves. Since we could not get to God, through our notions of realism and what is fitting to the divine, Paul declares, God had to get to us, had to reach us in a manner that would show us once for all that God's ways are not our ways. So God touched us in the manner of life and the specific mode of death suffered by Jesus. And predictably, Paul says, the rulers of this world did not recognize the one whom they crucified. The wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world collide at the cross. Paul's exhortation to his readers is just as provocative, just as much a counterintuitive appeal to the imagination as that we heard yesterday addressed to us by Hebrews. No less than Hebrews does Paul appeal to an understanding of the world that directly conflicts with the one that we ordinarily assume to be true. Of course, we say, the world is run through power and possessions and prestige and pleasure. And if the church is part of the world, then the same standard should apply here as well. But Paul declares that our understanding of reality is deficient because it leaves out of account the way in which God has actually displayed both power and wisdom through the weakness and foolishness of a single human being's suffering and shameful manner of death. The pattern of the cross is the pattern of God's activity in the world. It is not the exception 
It is God's rule. If this is, then, the source of the power that now calls them into a new existence and enables them to live in a completely new manner, then Paul argues God's foolishness is wiser than any human wisdom that they can construct. And God's weakness is stronger than any human power that they can manipulate. And as his most convincing proof, Paul appeals to the conditions of their own calling by God into the assembly. They were not, in fact, among the world's elite and sophisticated and powerful. They were, we are, let's face it, in worldly terms, not an auspicious lot. Just as God chose to reveal his wisdom and power through an executed Messiah, so God continues to reveal God's paradoxical wisdom and power through a community that comes not from the center but from the margins, not from the mighty but from the small, not from the smart but from the slow. God does this, Paul says, simply to show how the living God calls into being that which has no being, which is nothing, or to put it otherwise, that God is God and we are not. We are, this morning, in a small building, surrounded by the massive towers of economic and commercial power. We are in a silent space within the noise of a great city. We are not the movers and shakers of this metropolis, but among its less clever. We are mainly those who are moved and shaken, but we grasp a wisdom and power not our own as our salvation. And we claim with Paul that in such small and quiet and lowly spots as this one, all around the globe on this Tuesday of Holy Week, the mighty power and wisdom of God are silently at work to transform creation. <laughs>